book. And then after that, we get into the sections that are most familiar to us as Proverbs, those short, pithy, memorable sayings that cover a wide range of, of topics. Now, this introduction in the first nine chapters is comprised of ten lectures from a father to a son, along with two interludes, giving a, a total of twelve lessons. We've seen the first two of the ten lessons and one of the two interludes, and today we're going to look together at lesson number three in chapter three. So let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, thank you again now for gathering us, gathering us in person, gathering us by live stream so that we can each look into your word. And we ask you, Lord, to accomplish your purpose in your word, which is for us to, to see your character, to see your moral will for our lives, and for it to be carried out by us for you. And in order for that to happen, we need to give attention. And there are many cares that all of us have that we have brought with us to this time. Help us to be able to put those aside so that we can focus our minds upon what you say. Lord, we ask you to settle our hearts as well so that we, have, we are open to what you command and willingly seek then to put it in place in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I say, first of all, in that outline that you've been given, that we are to retain what we've been given. Retain what we've been given. We'll see why I say that in just a bit. But as I mentioned, this is the third of ten lectures the Father gives to His Son on wisdom. And there's a logical sequence to them because the first of these lectures, going back to chapter 1 and verse 8, implores the student to listen, it says. Listen to his instructor. And then the second lesson that we saw last week from chapter 2 urges the learner to go beyond listening to accepting the teaching. As we saw last week, that means to internalize it, to make it his own. And now is the next step. After listening and accepting, we now need to guard what we've been told and ensure that we never let it go. And we do that in a couple of ways. The first of which I say in the outline is this, by rehearsing. And I say that all because, verse 1, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart. When you're inevitably confronted by those who would pull you away from the righteous path, as we saw last week in chapter 2, happens with the wicked man who uses his words to convince you that life is other than you've learned, and it happens through the wicked woman who attempts to seduce you, when, not if that happens, you retain what you've been taught. You do not forget it. Rather than discarding it in your craving to fit in, or in your lust for sensual pleasure. That's what the father is telling his student son. And when it says to keep the teaching, it's a word that's sometimes translated guard. Guard it so that it does not, it's not replaced with something else. This being on guard is necessary because we are fickle and vulnerable people. We're fickle because we can be drawn away from our first love by something or someone new that appeals to our desire. 
And that's why James uses the imagery of fishing when he speaks of us being, he says in James 1, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So we're fickle, but we're also vulnerable in that this side of heaven, we still have our sin nature with which to contend. And our circumstances can reveal areas of our hearts that have been previously unexplored. Have you ever considered that? That in your heart, in my heart, we have lurking in our hearts areas that have been untested. And so it waits but a circumstance to now reveal something in our hearts that we didn't know was there. And so the Bible warns, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Do not forget, keep, guard. Now, some of you don't have to worry about forgetting what God says because, if we're honest, you haven't acquired it to begin with. You don't have to worry about letting it go because you don't have it. You've not done as Pastor Larry read earlier from Psalm number 119. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, I don't say that. I don't say that some have not acquired that, and therefore you don't have to worry about letting it go. I don't say that to shame anyone, but rather to challenge you and to say that this is, in fact, what you, what we all need. You do not know the right path just because you're you. (laughs) Just because I I happen to be a wise man or a, a wise woman. You don't know the right path to go just because you automatically have it. You know it because you follow God's wisdom. And if you want that, then I'm glad to tell you that you've come to the right place because His wisdom is contained in His Word, the Bible. And we on purpose named our church 20 years ago Community Bible Church. And our byline is that we are the family of God built on the Word of God to the glory of God. We're a Bible church, and therefore we offer classes to instruct you in the Bible. And we offer those classes without assuming you know anything about it, to bring you from where you are to where you need to go in an understanding of God's Word. So I'm going to mention yet another time that you can shoot us that text to 97,000, CBC Connect, you get a link back, you click on that, and then let us know you'd like to find out about these learning opportunities. So, student, mentee, son, learn it and don't let it go. But how is it that you you keep it? How is it that you go about guarding it? You keep it, you, you guard it by living out the commands that you've probably memorized. We need to remember that in the days in which Solomon is collecting these, giving these Proverbs and collecting them, in those days, no one was carrying around a Bible. The Bible itself, of course, was not completed, and there was no printing press to offer to the masses portions of that which had been completed. So memorizing was important. Now, it's less so now with the word at your fingertips, but we help you with that, at least with some memorization, in our Growth Partners program. And if you've not been in that and you would benefit from that, then I encourage you to let us know and we'll put you with a partner so that you can go through that. And once a week, you memorize 
an important verse in Scripture. As we read earlier, the psalmist said this, I meditate on your precepts. So how is it that in the midst of a world now that I go into after having listened, after having internalized, accepted the teaching, now I'm going to go out into the world and I need to keep it, I need to guard it, I need to not let it go. How do I do that? Well, I, I keep learning it, I keep rehearsing it. I memorize it so that I have it with me at the ready when it is needed. And that's why I say in this point that we rehearse what we've been given. We're to retain what we've been given by rehearsing it. And I say in the outline, by relaying it as well. Now we'll see verse 2 in just a bit, but for now, verse 3 says this, Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart. That is, the teaching and the commandments of verse 1 are going to be displayed in your life in the form of love and faithfulness. You've been taught this love and faithfulness to you, and you in turn are to demonstrate those in your life. So what's the difference between these, love and, and faithfulness? Faithfulness carries out what love commits to. Faithfulness carries out what love commits to. God commits to us in His love. And then because God is faithful, God is dependable, He carries out all that is necessary in order to make that love real in our lives. We do the same thing then. We do that with God first and foremost. We commit to God and in faithfulness, dependability, we carry out what's necessary to that commitment. We do that with others as well. And you wear them the passage says, verse 3, like a necklace. And you have them inscribed on your heart. Those are different ways of saying what we saw in verse 1. Don't let them go. Keep them near you. Keep them in your heart. Now, if you do these things that are mentioned in verses 1 and 3, the result is given in verses 2 and 4. You should keep the commands in your heart, and verse 2 gives a reason why. For, verse 2, because, that is, they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. And if your life is characterized by the love and faithfulness of verse 3, verse 4 says this, then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of man. Now this sounds like a straight up quid pro quo a mechanical kind of cause and effect. You do this and good things will happen. In fact, the way this lesson is structured in verses 1 through, uh, all the way down through verse 10, the way this lesson from the Father to the Son is structured, every command in the odd verses, the odd-numbered verses, results in some benefit in the even-numbered verses. So, verse 1, keep my commands. Verse 2, the benefit is life and peace. Verse 3, don't let go of unfailing love. The benefit that comes to you in verse 4, favor with God and people. 
We're going to see in the following verses. In verse 5, trust the Lord results in verse 6, a straight path. Verse 7, fear the Lord results in health in verse 8. Honor the Lord in verse 9 results in prosperity in verse 10. It sounds like Solomon has gone full Joel Osteen. Or you could mention any other myriad of false teachers of the so-called prosperity gospel that says if you do it right, then you get God's blessings. But the Bible teaches, and we're going to see later even in this, in this lesson, but it's all over the Bible that sometimes you do the right things and bad things happen. And I just remind you of some of those. Job. And the Bible goes out of its way to make sure that we understand that all the calamity that came upon Job was not because Job had somehow failed and brought this upon himself. In all of this, Job did not sin. The Bible says that Job was blameless even. Not perfect, of course, as no one is, but, but blameless in his walk with the Lord. And then you have, you have Joseph. And Joseph, and the way the Bible describes him and his character, and yet calamity comes upon him through the treachery of his, of his brothers. Of course, Jesus. Jesus did live an absolutely perfect life, and he had suffering and, of course, ultimately death, all planned by the Father and submitted to by him. But Paul, the apostle, who lived a, a life that we could only envy, if envy can be done in a, a godly way, and yet you read of all of his travails, and the rest of the apostles for that matter. In fact, to go on, the entire first century church and the persecution that it endured and its willingness to stand for the Lord throughout 2,000 years of church history, you have had people do that. And that's why the book of James then says we should count trials as joy when, not if, they occur. So how do we put this together then? You've got these odd-numbered verses say you do this. The even-numbered verses say this is what comes out of it. We have to remember what it is I said in the opening message of this series. That Proverbs are, in their very nature, they are general truths. They are not legal requirements. They are not legal guarantees. That doesn't mean, then, that the Bible has made an error because that's the nature of a proverb. So it is not making a claim by being in the form of a proverb that it will be a legal guarantee that if you do this every time, it will turn out that way. We have our own modern proverbs, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. You generally eat healthy, you'll be healthy. That's the idea. So you don't have to see the doctor. But of course, that's not always true. It's a proverb. It's a general truth, not a legal guarantee. I mentioned in that first message, Proverbs 22.6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Generally true, but not a legal guarantee. But although these are not legal guarantees, generally this is the way things go when you follow these wise instructions. We sometimes hear it said that he or she looks like they've lived a hard life. Sometimes that's from hard drinking or drugs or living on the streets or having a spouse who mis mistreats or making decisions that cause worry and fret and then the health problems that go with that. But on the other hand, those who follow the teaching of God's Word, especially when they're young, do not generally have those things, generally. And let me say, for those who are no longer young and who have not started on that, it's never too late to start. Because it's not how you start, it's how you finish. 
in the Christian life. So retain what you've been given. And then, secondly, rely on the one who gave. To this point in this lesson, we don't have anything directly pointing to God as the source of these blessings. And if you're not careful, you can read Proverbs and you can come away with a legalistic approach to life. I keep the rules, I do what I'm told, and good things happen. And as a result of that, God himself can be an afterthought if he's considered at all. But hear this, friends. Life is to be God-centered, not gift-centered. If God is not regularly at the forefront of our minds, then we'll fail to relate what happens to our relationship with Him. You see, the ultimate prize is not the gift, it's the giver. It's not the benefit, it is the one who's given the blessing. And so to avoid the mistake of thinking that these promises could be true for just any person who lives a moral life, without any necessary connection to the true and living God, the lesson goes on now in verse 5 to say this. Trust in the Lord. And notice that Lord is in all caps. And I said a few weeks ago that as you read through your Bible, most of your, our translations use the convention of putting in all caps the four letters of Lord in order to signify that a particular name of God, Hebrew name of God, is being translated there. And that's the personal name of God given to His people Yahweh. Trust in Yahweh, the one with whom you have a personal relationship. So the father is saying to his student son, you need to take care to retain what I'm telling you. Not just because I'm saying it, but because it's a fleshing out of what God has said in his word. And God has said, this is the way the world works. Contrary to what the wicked man will tell you that we saw in Proverbs chapter 2, contrary to all of the megaphones through which the deceiver of the garden still speaks, contrary to all of that, God has said, this is the way his world works. That those who are his are to live as he says, and when we do, his good gifts generally follow. But these are his commands, and they are his gifts designed to point us to him. And so we rely on the Lord. Now, how do we do that? I say we rely on the Lord, first of all, by believing him. Verse 5 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him. This word trust means to rely out of a sense rely on out of a sense of security. You rely on the Lord because you have a sense of security in Him. You're secure in the fact that you belong to the Lord. It requires that we rely on, we trust in Him entirely, verse 5 says, with all your heart, and not rely on the broken crutch of our own extremely narrow understanding. That great uh, theologian, Yogi Berra, said, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> but when we survey a, a situation, when we're at a crossroads and we have to make a decision, 
Just think about how narrow our store of knowledge is. We see only what is before us, but not what is ahead and all of the combinations and permutations that will come from it. All we can see is what's there, our narrow lens. But God sees all of that. And He, in fact, saw all of that in the past, in eternity past. And He's given you His Word to guide you in making decisions that are in keeping with His moral will. Now, that truly great theologian of the Great Awakening in the 1700s, Jonathan Edwards, he said that unlike us, God has two, not one set of lenses through which he can see everything. He has, yes, the narrow lens like we do, and he sees the situation just as it is in the moment, good, bad, ugly. But unlike us, God also has a second wide lens that sees everything and how you and where you are in the moment connects to everything. And he tells you, do what I've said. Trust me rather than your narrow understanding. Because I see how it all fits together. So just keep doing what I'm telling you to do, even if you don't see how it's going to work out. But this trust does not come naturally to any of us. And that's why it has to be maintained from day to day. You have to decide every day if you're going to trust God and therefore do what He says rather than taking matters into your own hands. A.W. Tozer said this, pseudo-faith, false faith, always arranges a way out in case God fails. Real faith, real trust, knows only one way and gladly allows itself to be stripped of any second way or makeshift substitutes. For true faith, it is either God or total collapse. That's a great line. For true faith, it's either God or total collapse. And not since Adam first stood up on earth has God failed a single man or woman who trusted him. The benefit of this is that if, verse 6, in all your ways you submit to him, he will make your paths straight. Believing the Lord, trusting the Lord, relying on the Lord in everything we encounter means consulting what he has said and then doing it, even if it's not what we want to do. But if you do so, then he will make your life, your path, your way straight and smooth. Now I say straight and smooth because the word that's translated straight in verse 6 can be either and it probably actually means both. Straight means if you follow what I've said because you trust me, then you'll stay on the straight and narrow morally. And if you do that, you'll save yourself from unnecessary hardship and difficulty your life will be smooth. Now, just a, a quick aside about those two verses, verses 5 and 6. They are perhaps the most well-known two verses in the entire book of, of Proverbs. But unfortunately, they've been misused to mean that if you trust the Lord, He will reveal which, for example, car to buy 
or reveal directly to you which person to marry or any number of decisions that we make on a a day-to-day basis and throughout our lives. And this is because the King James Version of this verse says says something different at the end. Instead of making your life overall straight and smooth, here's what it says. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. And so that that idea of God directing my path has come to mean for many people that he directs me in the moment about whether I should buy this car or that car or buy this item of clothing or whatever it is. It's been taken to mean that the Lord will give direction in each individual decision. Instead, it's as we've seen, if you live in harmony with the Lord's design, then you live your life in a way that pleases Him, and you're equipped now to make daily decisions that way. You don't need to seek the right decision through mystical means. You just live as God has said, and as a result of that, you'll make choices in keeping with His moral will. Now, if you're interested in that whole topic, and it is an important topic, and a fascinating topic, then I recommend to you a book that we have in our resource center called Decision-Making and the Will of God. It's a classic, and it's terrific. Uh, The paperback version costs about $16. If you order it on Amazon, I just looked it up uh, last night, and the Kindle version is available for $6.99, which is a steal, so I highly recommend it to you. So we rely on the Lord by believing Him and by revering believing him and revering him. Verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This fear or awe or reverence of the Lord is key because it will result in the other two things mentioned in this verse. If you're in awe of God and his knowledge and his goodness and his plan, then you don't have to be a legend in your own mind. (laughs) You don't have to be a know-it-all who has it all figured out and you can do it your own way. Somebody who likes to tell you how the world works without consulting the one who actually made the world. If you're in awe of the Lord, you'll do what the Lord says. Rather than being wise in your own eyes, and you'll avoid what the Lord says to avoid. That is, as the verse says, you'll shun evil. And generally, this will result in good things. Verse 8 says, this will bring health to your body, nourishment to your bones. You won't have lungs ravaged by defiling God's temple that is your body. You won't have a liver wasting away due to wasting away in in Margaritaville. You won't contract an STD due due to giving your body to illicit ways. And because health is psychosomatic, that is, the way you think has effects on how you how you feel your physical, bodily health, then those who spare themselves being racked with worry and doubt and anxiety because they find comfort in the security of being the Lord's and following the Lord, they will generally feel better physically. And so we rely on the Lord by believing Him, by revering Him, that is, fearing Him, holding Him in awe, and by esteeming Him. Verse 9 says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Now this moves us from internal commitments to trust and to fear 
to the outward display that is the result. Those who place the Lord first in their hearts place Him first in their worship, including their worship giving in this verse. Now, in an agrarian culture, this is referring to farming, which was the livelihood of many, and it says to give the first fruits, that is, give the best. Take some of what you've produced and give the best of it to the Lord. Now, you think about that. If that's your livelihood, and you look at all you've collected, all you've harvested, and now give the best of that to the Lord, that's now a sacrifice of market value for someone of greater value. And that's why this act is an act of honoring, of esteeming Him. Now, we don't talk a lot about giving money except when the Bible does, and here it does so. It's teaching us that a stingy wallet is the result of a wandering heart. The heart that trusts and reveres the Lord is lavish in giving back to the one who owns it in the first place as an act of honor, but also as an act of acknowledging the security that we have in Him because you trust that God's going to provide. In other words, I lost something in this transaction. In a sense, I gave the best of it to the Lord. I could have sold it and made money out of it. But I'm giving to someone of greater value than that anyway. And further, I trust the Lord to take care of it. And verse 10 says, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing. Your vats will brim over with new wine. Now again, a general truth, not a legal guarantee. But if you're not stingy with God... He will not be with you, especially if the giving heart you express in worship extends to giving to others in need. God does this for one who can be trusted to use his increased wealth to help the needy. Matthew Henry said this, God does not say your bags will be filled, but your barns. Not your wardrobe replenished, but your vats. God will bless you with an increase of that which is for use, not for show and ornament. For spending and laying out, not for hoarding and laying up. They that do good with what they have shall have more to do good with. Retain what you've been given. Rely on the one who gave. And then lastly, remember whose you are. As mentioned earlier, the general rule of blessing and benefit, if you believe and revere and esteem, does not always apply. So now we're going to be reminded here, do not get wigged out if it goes differently. <laughs> when God sends you not peace and prosperity and a good reputation and straight paths and health and nourishment. Verse 11, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. The reason the benefits are withheld and you go through a difficult time can be either because you simply live in a fallen world and God, for his own purposes, good purposes, has allowed it into your life as he did with, with Job, or it can be because you're straying from the path. And the loving Father who wants you to enjoy His benefits is calling you back to that path. 
But in either case, the one thing that's constant is God's love for those who are His. So that He's never doing something to us, but always doing something for us, for our benefit. And that's why the Bible then says, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. Now, all of this keeps us off balance slightly. Because on the one hand, I've got this security in the Lord. And generally speaking, if I follow His way, it's going to go a particular way. But it's not a legal guarantee. And at any time, for God's good purposes, God may bring something else. Difficulty and trial can still befall us, even when we believe and revere and esteem the Lord. While we enjoy His benefits, we can kind of have this feeling of, understandably, awaiting the next shoe to drop. But this is not punishment. Verses 11 and 12 are emphasizing. It's not punishment, but loving care. C.S. Lewis said this about the fact that we're never free of the reality that trial and hardship may come. But we also, at the same time, enjoy God's blessings. He said this, The settled happiness and security which we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, He scatters freely. We are never completely safe but we have plenty of fun and some ecstasy. It's not hard to see why. The security we crave would teach us to rest our hearts in this world and would pose an obstacle to our relationship with God. A few moments of happy love, a landscape, a symphony, a merry meeting with our friends, a bath or a football game have no such tendency. Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant lodgings, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. That's why God does this. You go out your, through your journey. You follow what God says. Generally, this is the way your path will go. But sometimes, God will bring something else your way for His good purposes. And in all of that, He's doing a good thing. He's keeping us off balance so that we don't find our security in how things are going but find it in our relationship with Him. So here's your take-home truth. The wise treasure God's Word, and they trust the God of that Word. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, we thank You again for allowing us to look into the word that you have given us and preserved for us so that we might know your will and live it. We thank you for the wisdom that you gave your servant Solomon and for these lessons that are as timely today as when they were first given because they are ultimately your truth. And so, Lord, help me, help us to see that we are to follow your way because you see everything. And as our Father, you have our best interest always at heart. Help us, each of us, to never turn to our own way and to be wise in our own understanding, but rather to remember that you're the omniscient God who knows all things, who sees all things, and therefore your way is always best. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together for our closing song.